I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. My guest today, when he eventually retires, should be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame as an executive, meeting the Hall of Fame criteria. This Marine, whose parents are buried in Arlington, went to Harvard Law School, worked in a law firm before moving to the Oakland A's, and began the analytics associated with Moneyball. Sandy Alderson worked there for a number of years with the legendary managers Billy Martin and Tony LaRusso, and moved from there to the Major League Baseball office where he was the chief operating officer and had responsibility for the umpires. He then took a job as the president of the San Diego Padres, moved back to the MLB office, and is beginning his second tenure as president of the New York Mets. Sandy Alderson is bright, strategic, a relationship builder, and has a huge passion for baseball. Our guest, Sandy Alderson. Welcome, friends. Sandy, I really appreciate you taking time. I mean, I look at you and your family, both your parents buried at Arlington and uh, your service. So thank you. Uh, what you've done for our country, obviously, is outstanding. Haven't done much lately although I've been somewhat outspoken about uh, the situation over the last few months. You know, I'm proud of the fact that I served the country in some capacity. It was a long time ago, but uh, I'm proud of my association with the Marine Corps and uh, what it represents. As one of the great institutions of this country, uh, I've got every confidence that uh, from where we are now to where we want to be, those institutions will help get us there. Well, again, thank you. You end up going to Harvard Law School. You begin practicing law in in uh, the San Francisco area. Your partner or owner of the law firm buys the A's. So talk about what that was like getting into baseball. I had been practicing uh, law for about four years. Uh, wasn't really that excited about it as a career. Uh, really enjoyed the people uh, in the firm. It, you know, it was a small firm in those days. Uh, you know, firms were smaller, maybe I think we had like 25 lawyers, which is really pretty small by today's standards. But uh, one of the partners of the firm and his father-in-law bought the Oakland A's. So I immediately started doing legal work. I, I was sort of the protege of, uh, of the partner, a guy named Roy Eisenhart, great guy. And so I started doing some of the legal work associated with the purchase. It was my one opportunity to meet Charlie Finley, one of the uh, sort of iconic <laughs> owners of uh, uh, over the last century or so. Um, after that, I got involved with salary arbitration. Turned out a partner and I were going to do the, I was an associate at the time, we were going to do the case and the partner got called away for another trial. So I ended up doing the whole thing basically. 
And uh, we won both cases that year. Tony Armas, name that people might recognize, um, Mike Norris. Uh, and that was kind of my baptism by fire. About a year later, I ended up going over to the A's and my whole attitude was, look, I can always be a lawyer. Why don't I see how this is? It's, it sounds great. And I, you know, I played a little baseball when I was growing up. And so that was, a, that was very appealing. How do you move up in the organization? You go in first as, as general counsel, then you get promoted to president? Well, I got promoted to uh, the equivalent of general manager before that and then president okay. thereafter. But, you know, today that would be a highly unusual shift from general counsel to, to a general manager. And the only reason I really got the opportunity was because Roy and his, and his father-in-law, um, Walter Haas, were very early in their ownership and didn't really know anybody. Uh, beyond the people who were then currently working for the A's. Billy Martin was our manager at the time. He was more or less acting as general manager, and he had populated the entire organization with his buddies. So when, when, when Billy left, somebody had to fill the void, at least in the front office. And I think Roy picked me mostly because he knew me, he trusted me, thought I was capable of learning on the job, um, and so, you know, that was, I think, how I ended up with the, uh, with the opportunity that then kind of went from there. When did you start the analytics piece? When did you begin to kind of reach out and be the forerunner of that? How long after you started with the A's did you get into the analytics piece? I think I took over the baseball side in, in the winter of, uh, 83. And so it was almost immediately after that. I listened to national public radio quite a bit and I was driving to work uh, one day and heard this uh, guy who was talking about analytics on NPR. And so as a result, I contacted him. He ended up, uh, he had written a small paperback book. He was in the same vein as Bill James, who's kind of a famous pioneer in baseball analytics. And I just bought into it. And the reason I bought into it was because it made sense, both from a conceptual standpoint and I think a mathematical standpoint. And I didn't have any other way to approach player evaluation. I wasn't a scout. I hadn't been in player development. I really didn't play that much. So in terms of making decisions about players, this was really like, uh, you know, throwing the life preserver. We hired this guy, Eric Walker was his name, and but we kept it quiet. He was a consultant. He wasn't a full-time employee. We started utilizing that, that information and that approach as early as 1984 because we drafted Mark McGuire. You know, the basic Moneyball principle is on-base percentage and power, and um, that's what Mark McGuire represented at USC. And there were some other occasions when it became clear, too, that the interesting thing about analytics in the 80s, though, is there was no data. How do you collected data at that point? Yeah, the data was very, very um, basic. That's why if you look at Bill James and some of his early writing, it wasn't really mathematical in nature. It was more conceptual. Of course, what he was saying made sense. It was rational. But there was so much, there was so, so little data at the time that it was difficult to make certain projections like you know what a guy did in double a and how that would project into the major leagues so that you, you had to make some leaps of faith but uh the basic concept you know offensively 
was, you know, control the strike zone and hit the ball out of the park. And from a pitching standpoint, it was control the strike zone and keep the ball in the ballpark. All the data that has been generated recently and all the in-depth analytics uh, analysis that takes place is really about expanding on that concept and getting more granular with respect to the data so that there's less and less guesswork associated with it. You know, and, and as a result, you know, baseball has become much more efficient because the numbers don't lie. People interpret the numbers roughly the same way. And so they make similar decisions. And uh, I think that's what's happened over the last 10 years. The game has become more one-dimensional. From an analytics standpoint, there's one, there's one way, basically, strategically, uh, to win games. So, you know, the suspense in the game, the, the uh, drama in the game is not about strategy. It's about execution. You know, is this guy going to hit a home run? It's not whether he's trying to hit one or not or whether he's going to bunt. It's just a question of whether he's going to be able to do it, which is too bad. Well, you spent 17 years there. I mean, yeah. you, Kara, you started out with Billy Martin. You had La Russa. I mean, you went through a, a lit, you went through some very interesting personalities as managers. <laughs> we had some, uh, well, you know, so Billy Martin was with us. Then we had uh, uh, – couple of others in between uh, Martin and Tony La Russa. And after Tony, you know, we ended up with a couple of other, uh, before I left, one other. So, I, I, you know, in that 17 years, I think I only had maybe five managers. And a couple of them were very short term. Tony was there for a long time. He came in 86. I think he left in 95 or so. But we ended up with a really good group. And we had, you know, we had a couple of other people, longtime baseball types um, who were really uh, instrumental in the growth of the uh, organization. We had some, we had some tremendous success, competitive teams. Yeah, we had good teams and they were entertaining. I mean, it was fun. We, you know, it, it was mostly fun to go on the road and kick somebody's butt and then walk out of the stadium. I, I kind of, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it uh, directly, but uh, <laughs> The team gets bought, and you join uh, the league office and uh, take over yep. operations. And I remember going to games with you when you'd be working those umpires and having your stopwatch and seeing how quickly and efficient you could manage. I mean, you took some of your analytics and processes that you had yeah. and brought it to the umpires, which I'm not sure they were happy about. Uh, they weren't happy about it initially. We actually had kind of a mass uh, resignation just before I took over and uh, because they heard what I was, I had been saying, I think the umpires uh, are much better today. As a result, we introduced a couple of things. I mean, one of, one of the, one of the big issues with umpires was the strike zone. My whole goal was to, because I was, I was representing the umpires uh, from a management standpoint was to enhance their credibility. The idea that each umpire had his own strike zone was, was to me, was, was uh, ridiculous. Uh, there's a strike zone in the book, and that's the, that's the book that players are entitled to expect. And so we introduced some technology to, to uh, reinforce that. It was um, all used behind the scenes for training, but I kept telling the umpires, I said, you know, 10 years from now, this, this uh, technology is going to be in the public domain. 
and the media is going to have it. And every pitch is going to have a, you know, pitch tracks or something on the screen. And you're going to be measured against that. Bottom line is, you know, you're going to be held accountable. That's the interesting thing about umpires. If you go back before the days of television, there was no accountability. They could do anything they wanted because there was no evidence. Then you get television, and then you have um, slow-mo, and you have instant replay, and all of these things leading to more and more accountability on the part of umpires, which is a good thing. The problem that we have now is that we've taken all of the sort of entertainment element out of umpiring. If you go back a few years with uh, Earl Weaver and uh, Tommy Lasorda, Billy Martin, I mean, Tommy Lasorda just passed away the other day and they they, they brought theater to the game. They brought something besides just balls and strikes. They were personalities. Personalities were revealed on the field as well as off the field. Uh, these were kind of larger than life types. We don't have that anymore. It's all because it's all about efficiency and probability. And, and also technology has kind of eliminated a lot of the uncertainty surrounding decisions. So you got instant replay. You can't argue about a play at second base. It's, I mean, it's, you have it occasionally, but not very often to the point where I've even advocated at some point, they ought to be able to argue balls and strikes again, just for fun. (laughs) <laughs> I, know, I hear you. I hear you. you it's interesting. You, you do your job with Major League Baseball, then you get a chance to go to San Diego, open a new ballpark, which yeah. is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. And then the owner ended up with some financial difficulties and he ended up coming back to the league, working, working with him for Bud, doing some work in Puerto Rico. Yeah, the Dominican Republic. And Dominican I enjoyed Republic. that. It wasn't for that long. It was, well, maybe, you know, less than a year. But uh, I actually like taking on the jobs that most other people <laughs> wouldn't take. There's a challenge associated with that. And uh, maybe that goes back to my Marine Corps days. But um, I enjoyed being down there. And it wasn't without controversy because everybody thought I was coming down there to tear up the system and um, impose a draft and what have you. But uh, I really enjoyed it down there. My dream job is to be ambassador, U.S. ambassador to the Dominican Republic. But I think I'm past my prime for that. You got to let Biden know that. Yeah, right. I mean, these <laughs> read your op-ed you have. He might. Uh, yeah. But now yeah. you've signed up your second tour of duty with the Mets with a whole different yeah. owner. Talk a little bit about that, what that process was like with the person you had never met and how you ended up with the role. You know, the Wilpons years ago, uh, sold part of the team to a group of a, a number of minority partners, and Steve Cohen was one of those. Uh, Steve never came to our meetings, but we had meetings periodically to, you know, inform the minority partners of what was going on. And so I made presentations to that group uh, quite often. And the person who runs his family office, Andy Cohen, no relation, came to those meetings. And so through Andy, I. I got to know Andy, didn't really know Steve at all. When Steve decided to buy the team, uh, Andy reached out to me and said, you know, would you mind just helping us think through some things, which I said I'd be happy to do. So I flew up to New York. That was December of 2018, I guess, and um, had breakfast with Steve. That's the last time I've ever been with him. 
everything's everything's been on Zoom since. So he took a certain leap of faith, I think, with me. And, uh, you know, I appreciate Andy's uh, support. And that's how it kind of came about. But my interest is just, look, if, it was the Mets. I'd been there. I, you know, it was an opportunity to come back under somewhat different circumstances and, and uh, in a different role. And I jumped at it. I thought, no, I would, would I have done this someplace else? I don't know. The potential of the Mets franchise, the people that are still there that I knew that I really enjoyed working with, uh, Steve and Andy, uh, I just thought it was going to be a great situation. And, and that's the way it's turned out so far. I mean, what you've done in terms of approaching free agency with a, uh, a deeper pocketbook, so to say, and, and but you've taken a very strategic approach and uh, we've had the opportunity to work with you and help you uh, to some degree. And what's that been like in terms of, uh, first of all, looking at the market and understanding you've got more money to spend, yet you still have to manage the assets and manage the uh, limits? Coming in immediately, you really have to respond to the baseball calendar. There's certain things that happen. So the sale took place early November. There's things that take place every year in November, December, January. So you kind of jump in, and uh, it's like being on a conveyor belt. And so the, at the time we jumped in, it was uh, free agent time. And so we had to be up and running while at the same time uh, searching for more baseball leadership and other other uh, you know baseball um, executives, but at the same time we had to function, so we we couldn't. So you know in the, during the time that we we were searching and ended up with uh, Jared Porter, we made a couple of deals uh, that I think again were strategic in, in in the sense of their timing and also who they were. We now have a fuller baseball executive team, and it's really going quite well, I think, in terms of how we make, how we approach things uh, and make decisions. In the meantime, I got the whole business side, which also has to be rebuilt and uh, or expanded. And uh, so it's, you know, every day I spend, uh, you know, seven or eight Zoom calls. And um, as people know from, from their Zoom experience, uh, that can get tiring. Um, and uh, not exhausting, but just mentally, you know, it's uh, you try to be there at five o'clock the same way you were at, say, 1030. Sandy, when you think about your brand now, how it's changing uh, with Steve's input, how do you mm -hmm. see that's brand as it relates to the community and overall? I would say that everybody, almost every industry, but certainly in baseball, would have the same sort of mission statement. You know, you want to be successful on the field. You want to be successful financially. You want to be known for how you achieve that success. And you want to be relevant to the community. You want to, you want to be part of that community. You want to be a civic asset to the people around you. Um, that's the idea. But like I said before, you have to execute on it. We can make that statement. We can proclaim that's our goal. And, you know, at some point, it's just words. You actually have to act on it. And in some respects, you know, fans, the media, they're, 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 not, they're not that patient. So <laughs> Steve says he wants to do this and do that, you know, two weeks later. Hey, where are you? What's happened? You have to manage that. But those are the kinds of expectations. But you know what? Those are, those are fun to manage. Um, those are the kinds of challenges that I think 
you know, from my standpoint, I really enjoy. You know, when I was with the Mets before, I, I, I think I was known for being very patient. But there's no virtue in patience unless you make, you know, a timely decision thereafter. Being patient just means watching and you're waiting. But at some point, you got to act. Fortunately, with the resources that uh, Steve has, we've been able to do that over the last couple of months. Sandy, you bring the experience, the intellect, the ability to build relationships with all different people, this incredible credibility, along with your own personal battle with cancer that you've survived, which has been an amazing challenge that you've overcome. Yeah, well, life has its challenges. (laughs) One of the things I've learned, though, over the last few months is um, you can have a lot of experience and so forth, but if you don't remain contemporary, you know, if you don't remain curious about what's going on, in this case, how the game has evolved and what's necessary today to be successful, uh, then you're not going to be. I think curiosity is really the foundation. Of, we talk about continuing education and life learning and so forth. You don't get you don't get any of that without curiosity, and you don't get any you don't really establish relationships with people if you're not curious about them. That's the whole basis of empathy. I think is just projecting interest in those people and in in a genuine way. You know, those, those kinds of things are, are important, even in, you know, in leadership situations. You know, I really believe leadership is a function of professional ability, competence, and then personal qualities. And you can be the greatest manager in the world, for example, and if, if you can't get along with people, that credibility on the field as a result of the professional confidence, competence isn't going to last that long. You're going to burn, you're going to burn out those relationships to the point where the, the professional ability is becomes irrelevant when you think about today's game talk about how the billy martins and the larusso's how they didn't how they would work in today's analytics and the way the front office works with with the manager and the and the coaches well i can tell you billy martin would have wouldn't have had anything of of that Uh, i had a conversation with him once new to the team and so forth but you know, uh, representing ownership in his office and left. And uh, the next, that night I found out he completely tore up his office. He was so teed off at me. <laughs> I mean, he destroyed it uh, and everything in it. The question was how quickly could we get the office restored <laughs> so that the media didn't find out that he, you know, that he had gone ballistic. But uh, so Billy wouldn't have tolerated any of that stuff. Tony has evolved, but he's still, you know, he's still Tony LaRusso. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in Chicago. But um, even Tony, Tony understands, you know, the value of, of information. You know, there are very few managers now that aren't willing, you know, to take some direction, at least from the front offices. But you'd be foolish not to. At least you know what the other team is thinking. If, uh, if if they're into the information and the analytics, but as I said, a lot of the color has been taken out of the game as a result of some of these these types of managers um, not getting jobs. When we were working together, the Tampa Bay situation came up with what with the Dodgers in terms of 
how the manager managed the pitcher. Talk a little bit about that because you had a point of view in terms of why he did what he did as opposed to other people that had a different point of view. Yeah, you know, if you look at analytics, the, the biggest uh, pitfall is basing anything on a small sample. And the smallest of samples is one moment in time. I think that Tampa Bay got to the World Series because they had made similar decisions in a similar fashion over and over again. And that over the length of a season, those decisions bore out. Not that they were right in every case, but in terms of enhancing the probability of success, they worked out. Now, here's one instance. It's in a you know critical situation, and it's a national showcase. I don't believe that manager made the, re- made, the, made the decision he did because he was concerned about what the front office would think. I just think that's how he was trained. You know, in any leadership situation, you've got to be able to deviate from the plan uh, from time to time. But the question is, how often do you do that uh, in the face of these statistics that try to predict, you know, probability and success? And that's the question. Some clubs, they don't deviate at all. Uh, Some clubs do. The ones that don't deviate, they say, look, all of these peculiar circumstances are taken into account in the overall breadth of the data. Okay, maybe that's true. Most clubs, you know, do look at the situation and uh, against the backdrop of the analytics, but try to bring the human element. But that's that's dangerous. So I didn't have any problem with that decision at all. I understood where it came from. And I also understand that, you know, if it had been successful, there wouldn't have been any of this criticism of analytics. In fact, analytics would have been extolled even more than they are currently. and that's that's the that's the danger that you you start making decisions based on results and not process and preparation. And that's been a big emphasis of yours since you've taken back over in terms of getting processes right. I think good good organizations have good people. They have they have the right structure, the organizational structure, and then they have processes that leverage both the people and the structure. Thing about good process, I think, is that it brings a consistency to decision, so that you know you're not forgetting anything. When I was a lawyer, I did things like sometimes like leases and you know contracts. And you do a lease, like a residential lease or a commercial lease. You got a checklist. You don't just look at everyone, you know, um, from scratch. You got a checklist. Does it have an assignment clause? Yes. Does it have a choice of law? Uh, clause, yes, does it have a note? You know, all these things. It's like a checklist. That's what a process is. That's what an algorithm is almost. When I was in the Marine Corps, we had them all over the place. And I can still remember them. That's uh, over 50 years ago. SMEAC was one. We had SMEAC. There's a five-paragraph order. That's kind of the way uh, you communicated uh, in those days with, you know, within your unit. Situation, mission, execution, administration, communication. That's what it stood for. And that was right here in your brain all the time. And it was a way of not missing anything, or at least, you know, not missing that much or doing it over and over or missing things over and over again. So, Sandy, back when in you and I being the same age, 
uh, you went to Dartmouth on a, I think a, a Navrock scholarship. Yeah. And I ended up going into the reserves because of draft, but I can still remember your picture as a Marine person that was pictured saying, we want you. Had that. Yeah. Was, uh, that's, I, I still got, I got a big metal, like four by three foot poster. It was really an ad in front that, that came from in front of a post office. But that happened back, I don't know, when I was uh, stationed after I came back from Vietnam. That was, uh, you know, they took some pictures one day and they picked me out and that was, uh, that was the poster. But I'm, you know, sort of proud of that. It was, oh, yeah, it was just, absolutely. It was just serendipitous, if you will, but, you know, it's there for posterity. So for our audience to understand, there was uh, back when we were trying to either get drafted or they were trying to draft us, the services were trying to advertise or trying to promote why you should enlist with a certain group. And you were the poster boy for the Marines. For This was for uh, recruiting officers, but, you know. Yeah, it was uh, Marine Corps actually had a history of inventive, uh, original advertising. That's how they snooker you into the Marine Corps. <laughs> <laughs> so you made the choice. I mean, obviously going on NAVROC, you can go Navy, you can go Marines. You decided to go the Marine route. Yeah, I just felt, I don't know at the time. I mean, it was uh, when I made that choice, it was like 1967. So that was, you know, right at the height of the Vietnam War. Right. And you knew you were going in. Actually, uh, I went to Vietnam twice as a as a uh, reporter. I talk about that much. But in 67 and 68, I went to Vietnam. 67, I went there to to visit my dad, who was a pilot in the Air Force. And uh, then I went back in 68, uh, you know, as a quote unquote uh, journalist. But um, you know, the Vietnam era, that was, you know, in my formative years, that was a, a obviously an all-consuming topic here in the United States and other places. I mean, as you look at your leadership today and the different organizations you've led, I mean, you've had success every place you've been. People respect you. I mean, Steve Cohen couldn't have made a better choice to bring you in. So what was it for you take take your intelligence, the way you deal with people, well, how did the Marine Corps really ground you as a leader? Well, first of all, I think to be successful in the Marine Corps as a leader, you have to be successful as a teammate and have to respect those you're, you're, with whom you're working and those who, who may be working for you. And I really enjoyed that camaraderie, you know, with uh, sergeants, corporals, and staff NCOs. Uh, as well as, you know, other officers. But I really enjoyed the kind of cross-section that that represented. I think when you're leading people of, you know, of a diverse, um, you know, a diverse group, you have to have some connection to them. So, you know, what the Marine Corps does, I think, is that they instill a certain number of, I'm not sure they instill these qualities, they uncover these qualities. Maybe these qualities attract people in the Marine Corps, uh, but definitely in the training, uh, you end up uh, disciplined, not regimented, but disciplined. What most people don't know about 
the military is that there's a tremendous amount of latitude in decision-making at very low levels, uh, and that's promoted. So there's a tremendous amount of growth um, that way. You know, as I said earlier, um, professional competence, personal qualities. And the the thing about leadership that I think is that not everybody's cut out for every leadership role. You know, there are different circumstances. There are different things that are required. Not everybody is good at all of them. Like you could have somebody in a foxhole next to you and they're fantastic in terms of their example and how they and, and how they uh, react in situations and, and leadership and right. Put them in another setting, like uh, in the in the rear, in a you know uh, combat information center or something, and they're totally lost. So leadership is not something that just you know can be applied in a variety of different circumstances successfully by everybody. But I think um, you know from the Marine Corps, it's not just discipline but character. One of the things in my whole career, I mean, not that I learned it from the Marine Corps, but I've never wanted to embarrass any of the institutions with which I've been associated. I don't, I never wanted to embarrass the Marine Corps. I never wanted to embarrass Dartmouth College or Harvard or Major League Baseball. And that was kind of a powerful motivator uh, for me. I, you know, it's not that I want to please people, but I want to make sure that I represent them as, uh, in these institutions in some way as best I can. Well, thanks for coming on. We've known each other since Cooperstown back in the early 90s. And uh, I, I can remember Mike Crowley introduced us and you were working with Bud and that stayed in that resort, that old uh, hotel or whatever it was right on the lake. Uh, Otisaga Hotel, yeah. Otisaga. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 I appreciate it, Jed, very much. And I appreciated the friendship and, uh, and more recently the... Uh, professional work that uh, we've been able to do together. Well, I really uh, thank you for bringing us aboard and having confidence in us and glad we were able to help you to some degree. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. To a great degree. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Take care.